Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guests will be Dr. Sam Simbaris from Housing First and Helga Matko from uh, the Gestalt Institute of Rhode Island. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb about our website and our book. Our website is called hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for anyone who wants to make a positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. And for more information, go to our website at hamsnetwork.org slash book. I see our guest, our first guest is already here. This is Dr. Sam Sambaris, who is from Housing First. Uh, good evening, Dr. Sambaris. Welcome to the show. Good evening. Thank you. Uh, can I call you Sam? Yes, of course. Okay, Sam, tell us a little bit about what is Housing First? Uh, how does it differ from other housing programs? Housing First is different from other housing programs because it separates housing as a need for being homeless or instably housed and clinical treatment for mental health or addiction problems. Most uh, treatment programs for the people we work with who are people that are uh, homeless uh, and have co-occurring diagnoses often most of those programs, most traditional programs, have a particular approach, which is that they require the person to first be clean and sober and to be participating in psychiatric treatment, usually in the form of uh, taking medication, as a prerequisite to giving them housing, so that the housing is offered as, a, uh, as an incentive, if you will, to engage in treatment, and the housing is a reward for uh, successful engagement in treatment. Now, that's a pretty standard 12-step, you know, uh, model of uh, abstinence-based housing, and it does, uh, it's not only widely practiced, but many people do just fine in that model. We started Housing First as an alternative to that approach because there are also many people who don't do well in that model, who can't uh, manage their symptoms and can't manage their addiction, and so they end up remaining homeless and, of course, addicted and symptomatically worse. So Housing First really uh, came about after the Treatment First system as an alternative uh, harm reduction approach that's very consumer-centered and offers the services of housing and treatment in the sequence that is really not only desirable for the for the people we serve, but also something they can manage. And it's had uh, really terrific success with this population that hasn't been served in the treatment-first approach. Uh, do you function as a wet housing approach where people are able to use drugs or alcohol while they're, while they're in your housing? Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I think that what we try, we don't call it wet housing. I think housing is housing. I I think if we really looked and thought about it for a minute, that most people uh, who are living in in any town or city in this country 
you'll have a distribution of people. Some are using, some are using uh, alcohol, some are using a lot of alcohol, some are using a little, some are using drugs, a lot or a little. So there, there's a great distribution of just in the normative way that people live, uh, some use and some don't to varying degrees. We don't uh, try and have a program for the people we're serving that's any different than uh, normal life. Uh, so uh, I don't call it wet housing or dry housing. I just call it housing. If the person wants to be drinking in the housing, that, that's uh, that's their issue. For me, uh, you know, they're, they're, they have rights to housing like everybody else so that if they're paying their rent and if they're good neighbors, then what business is it of ours how they uh, choose to spend their time? Now, since you're housing homeless people, how are they paying their rent? Well, the homeless people we focus on are people who have uh, pretty uh, severe problems. Uh, So they usually, I mean, the great proportion of them have a disability income, SSI. Uh, In some cases where the disability is not so great, they have a a kind of a public assistance or welfare. And in some states, uh, the welfare pays a portion of the rent or they uh, pay some portion the old housing we have is uh, subsidized. You know, we, we win contracts from the government, the federal or the state or the city government. So the bulk of the rent is paid for by the agency. The uh, clients we serve pay about 30% of their income towards their rent. That's the deal in what we run, which is called supported housing. So that 30% can be either the person's disability check or 30% of their income, or if they have nothing, then it's 30% of nothing. They, we, we subsidize the whole thing. And then we, we have a lot of support services. Our program is all about, even though it's called Housing First, and uh, just to put in a uh, plug for the agency name, the agency's Pathways to Housing. That, that's the agency that I started and uh, still work in. The... Um, the pathways to housing approach uh, is really uh, a bit of a misnomer because the housing is given to people as a matter of right. We sort of operate on the assumption that housing should be a basic right for people, as should you know education and health care and a bunch of other things that uh, you know the uh, human rights uh, charter indicates. Uh, but the uh, all of our staff, about 90% of our staff are clinicians. They're treatment people. They, they help people cope with, with uh, mental health problems. They help them cope with addiction. Uh, we, they help them find jobs. They help them reunite with families. They help them with their health care. So after the person is housed, and this is another aspect of housing first. I mean, you put someone in housing right away, and then they become very interested in getting the rest of their life together in order to keep the housing there's so much, uh, especially in this country. I mean, Europe is much more harm reduction friendly than the United States. There's so much uh, emphasis placed on getting sober to get into housing. It turns out when you put someone into housing who's drinking or using, they suddenly get very invested in holding on to that housing and reduce their drug and alcohol use dramatically because they have something finally that they care about. When you're on the street, what's the difference? You kind of have to knock yourself out one way or the other just to cope. Suddenly you have an apartment furnished, you care, you're kind of protective of that and then of yourself by extension. 
So it has a kind of a a treatment effect, if you will, uh, doing doing things this way. Well, I think you've just uh, mentioned an important issue that, that needs to be addressed or talked about. Um, in our country, a lot of people think, you know, that drug use or alcohol use, drunkenness, leads to homelessness. But uh, my experience is that it also goes the other way. Uh, having to live on the streets can drive many people to use drugs or alcohol or greatly increase their drug or alcohol use. Do you find this to be true? That's absolutely accurate. I think that, uh, you know, not only does the drug and alcohol usage increase, cause, because people almost have to, uh, you know, numb themselves out in order to be able to exist on the street. And that's all that's going on, you know, with uh, other people sharing and, and so on. And also uh, mental health-wise, I mean, people are, are sleepless, they're afraid, they're exhausted, uh, they're, they're fearful of being arrested. So, you know, this is not a good uh, state to be in. So people either kind of knock themselves out by increased uh, drug-alcohol use or they get quite symptomatic and, uh, you know, their mental health symptoms start to go way up. Now, I was just going to mention, um, I'm not a total stranger to this, uh, when I was in uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul area, for two years, I lived in the St. Anthony residence wet house there, which is uh-huh. the one that was in the New York Times a few months back. So, actually, I saw a picture of my old roommate there in the New York Times. So, I'm not a total stranger to this. Um, so, I think it's a very important thing because, you know, it uh, offers people something that, you know, that's very necessary and I just well, want to what say, was you, what was your experience? What was your experience like there at St. Anthony's? Well, I had a mixed experience. Um, I don't think our staff was as concerned as the Housing First uh, project about rehabilitating people. For example, if you worked on the books, they wanted 100% of your income to go to your rent. So it was very difficult for me when I was trying to move out and get employment. To actually, you know, if I had not had a friend do me a favor, I would not have been able to get out. So I thought that was a negative point about the way they were running that, their program at that point in time. However, um, yeah. it did give me a, a place, you know, that get, kept a roof over my head. And the only alternatives I was offered uh, had mandatory 12-step attendance, and that just violates my religious beliefs. I don't, uh, I don't agree uh-huh. with 12-step programs uh, for from religious grounds. So it was a good place for me in many ways. Um, I thought they could have had some improvements. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I think the issue of, uh, of sort of self-determination is, um, is so central to this because I think that, uh, uh, especially when we're talking about uh, ways to help people, people, people are not, Helped by coercive measures, they. Uh, I think. I think people learn to comply with coercive measures, but I think people are truly helped when they feel themselves having a uh, being an active participant in their own recovery. And so, it, I think ultimately the the uh, the healing has to come from a personal choice and. And what we've tried to do in, in the Housing First program is really to uh, encourage that decision-making right from the beginning. We, you know, you'll meet someone, you know, who's on the street and they've got all these problems. We don't actually even presume to know that they do want Housing First. 
we really ask them is like, how can we help you? How can we help you in a very honest and uh, legitimate offer of help? And and uh, typically people do say, I want a place to live. Isn't it obvious? So we end up doing housing first because not because we think it's a good idea, but because that's what people typically want when they're on the street. And then the same question is asked right after their house. It's not the program doesn't become prescriptive after housing. After housing, people so there's a list of questions about housing. Where do you want to live? Who do you want to live with? Do you have a pet? Where's your stuff? Do you have a choice of neighborhoods? So the person is engaged very actively in uh, selecting the housing, decorating the You know, it's not they're moving into a program. We find an apartment, and they're making a home for themselves, their home, their home on their terms. And then after they're housed, it's like, okay, what do you want to do next? I mean, uh, you want, you know, call family. You want to look for work. You want to just chill for a while. I mean, whatever it is, you know, we keep coming back, visiting and supporting and asking the questions but very much uh, in a way that the person is in the driver's seat. Because that's, we, I think, the fun foundation of real healing. I agree with you, absolutely. And when I was looking at your website um, and reading things about your program, I thought uh, this is a really excellent model for uh, doing uh doing housing for homeless people, especially homeless people with co-occurring problems like drug use, alcohol use, or mental problems. So I was very impressed, and um, I would like, you know, the the, the uh, Minneapolis people that I was with uh, to take a look at this and, you know, think about, you know, maybe incorporating some of your ideas into the way they're doing their wet housing programs. Yeah. Well, there is a, there is a, a some, uh, you know, uh, dissemination, replication going on, slow but but uh, but uh, but uh, but steady. I would say progress, and uh, and it's not, uh, you know, and it's not a trouble-free program. By the way, I don't want to describe it as like a, some kind of an easy fix. It's very mm-hmm. hard to struggle with addiction and and mental health problems. I mean, actually, curing the homelessness piece is uh, the easiest part of the program. Uh, dealing with uh, addiction and mental health problems is really the, 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 the much more complicated and difficult work. And people relapse. I mean, uh, people, uh, somebody's homeless and, and they get an apartment and they invite their buddies over because they can't say no to them because they've, you know, watched their back when they're on the street. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, you're not, not going to say, no, you can't come over to my apartment, uh, take a shower, or, uh, sleep on the couch, and then the person ends up living there. And then that person has a friend they can't say no to, and then the landlord is pushing for eviction because you've got, like, four people living in this apartment, you know, where only one should be or maybe even more than that. So then you have to, you know, you go back and say, look, what are you going to do? You have to ask your friends to leave or you're going to lose your apartment. You know, it's your choice. We'll help you either way. But, uh, you know, there's a learning involved in all of that. And so it, it, it the person, you know, once you're in the program, you're not going to lose – you're not going to lose us. You may lose that apartment. We'll find you another apartment. But we commit to the person long term, you know, to help them through the, you know, peaks and troughs and valleys uh, and highs, uh, uh, so that uh, you know there's there's a good outcome, which which takes uh, longer than just finding an apartment. There was a nice point you just brought up because I think a lot of people, you know, who've never been homeless don't realize just how much. Uh, homeless people watch each other's backs. What strong bonds there can be, and how much people can look out for each other while they're living on the street and afterwards. 
Absolutely. It is uh, for many people, um, especially uh, when there is, uh, you know, uh, there's a community. It's a community of support. It's a community of of safety. It's a community of, uh, you know, really um, strong uh, bonds that really uh, help the person survive better. It's quite fundamental. And so then, you know, some people get an apartment and, like, they, they'll go and then hang out, you know, back with their homeless buddies because uh, they, you know, that's that's who their community's been. So uh, that transition from homelessness to being housed is uh, is much more complicated than just a matter of getting a lease and a key. I think it is. Uh, how many areas, uh, different states and areas, are, do you have uh, your program in? Well, uh, Pathways to Housing uh, operates uh, programs in uh, four states. Well, D.C., you know, that ambiguous, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, is it a state or is it a district or a city? Washington, D.C., New York, Philadelphia, and Burlington, we operate programs there. But we do a lot of uh, training and technical assistance, and I can probably point to uh, Housing First programs that we have trained uh in in uh at least half of the 50 states and uh and now it's all over Canada the Canadians adopted it quite uh quite strongly two or three years ago and it's in uh, six or seven cities up there and it's also spreading in Europe when did your program get started it started back in 92 we started in New York City with uh uh, I was doing a uh, street outreach to people, just uh, you know, offering them a sandwich or uh, something to drink. You know, they were on the street, visibly, visibly struggling, and uh, you know, we had nothing to offer them except a ride to uh, Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital, which wasn't a very popular offer, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, over time, it was clear we had to do something different, and uh, and we did. We basically. Uh, you know, we did. We decided uh, maybe we'll ask people what they want instead of telling them what to do. And I think that was a huge breakthrough because that's what led us very soon after that to Housing First and uh, offering the program in a way that was acceptable and meaningful to the person rather than some preconceived idea of what we had going. Well, it's very important to communicate to people as being your fellow human beings and not being some kind of different species because they're homeless or drug users or something. And too often that seems to be the case with many agencies. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. And I think also there is a kind of a there is a kind of a overemphasis on the uh, drug use and uh and alcoholism. It's so uh I I, I don't know with the politics of it and everything else but really, underneath it all is a kind of a is a kind of a loneliness and a kind of a, a need to connect with others, and and then often the drug uh, use uh, is really um, a form of creating community uh, to alleviate the loneliness. Uh, so. It's. Uh, I think it gets talked about in alarming ways because it's sort of the most visible, and that there's a lot of misunderstanding. You know, people think that people use because they want to, and it's drug uh, drugs of choice, and all of that, and and, and many many uh, completely uh, misunderstood 
uh, ideas about addiction that I think really get in the way of of, um, of good addiction treatment, which is really uh, about things like loneliness and and and, and sadness and, uh, and 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 other you know more um, deeper problems, really. Well, it seems like the politicians always need to be stirring up fear and hate against some group or other, whether, you know, in the past it's been the homosexuals or black people in the U.S. have been, and now that that's more accepted, now it's suddenly the drug users and the alcoholics. And it's it's like, you know, can't we just get rid of this, you know, need to scapegoat some group of people all the time? Yeah, yeah. No, I think, uh, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think that... Uh it's uh, you you have to actually uh be very deliberate in wanting to achieve that goal because um you know people trained in in even the helping professions people trained in in mental health or addiction treatment are uh quickly um desensitized to the common humanity of all of us uh, right away from uh, from school and graduate school on to clinical training, there is a, um, a, a, a a lot of teaching around diagnostic categories and, and symptoms and uh, you know uh, residential conditions and all of that. And and every time uh, that one person is putting a label on another person. That is a form of separation. That is a form of, I am not like you, you are this kind of a person. And it begins, it's subtle. It seems like, oh, it's clinical, and it's like the, the correct diagnostic category. It seems scientific almost, but it really has this other effect as well, which is the effect of separation and the effect of segregating one group from the other. And I think when you have people with multiple problems like we're talking about, you have multiple labels, and then by extension, multiple layers of separation. And so then it's easier to uh, make them not like us or, you know, uh, somehow other than and not care or not treat or not engage uh, as if this person could be your brother or your sister or your aunt, you know. Uh, it... it, uh, it, it it's a, it's in the social structure, very deeply woven, and uh, it's really something to to guard against and, and, and fight against, really, so that you can create that uh, unity again and you know feel your the empathy for your fellow human being. Yeah, this is why I've had a lot of objection to the new ASAM definition of addiction as an organic brain disease. Actually, they. When you talk about drugs, you know, there's there's no such thing in the minds of our government as a recreational drug use. All drug use is treated as addiction. It's either prison or treatment, and, you know, we don't recognize this as a, as a right. I mean, I think, you know, the laws stop at your skin. You know, what you put inside your body is your own business. Uh, I, I'm sorry. Can you repeat that question, Ken? Um, I believe that the, the the laws should stop at the surface of your skin, and that what you put in your own body oh. is your own business. Right, 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 right. No, I think you. And I, I and I agree with you about this idea of the organic brain disease. It's such a hopeless kind of a classification. You know, people 
people can and do recover from uh, mental health and addiction uh, problems all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I think, you know, if you start to classify it as somehow organic, uh, you know, to the uh, physiology of the person, it makes it sound so permanent, which really uh, extinguishes hopefulness, you know, uh, and uh, I, hope is a, is a, is a big uh, ingredient in recovery. And so uh, I, 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 too, am not a big fan of uh, sort of a physiological uh, kind of diagnostic categorization of things like this. And we have good studies. I'm not, I'm not, denying, I'm not denying that there are brain changes. I'm just saying, though, that you know, a more useful frame for understanding them is, uh, is uh, in the context of a more hopeful frame. Absolutely. And there are good studies by the NIAAA on alcohol use where we found that uh, the majority of people overcome alcohol dependence on their own. That's right. That's right. You know, there's lots of good good uh, evidence about the spontaneous recovery. Some of the studies I, I read many years ago, when, uh, and it's probably true now for the returning veterans in uh, Afghanistan and uh, and Iraq, uh, when people were coming over from Vietnam, uh, there was a, an enormous amount of uh, opium addiction among the troops in Vietnam. And uh, and yet uh, the opium that was so readily available in Vietnam was not available when they came back to the States. And remarkably, people just kicked the habit. It wasn't like they went to treatment or, uh, you know, 12-step uh, or anything. Like it wasn't here. They didn't use it. So there is a huge environmental, uh, uh, you know, uh, effect there. But it also demonstrates these so-called organic brain, uh, you know, diseases suddenly spontaneously remit when, when the stuff's gone. And not only when the stuff is gone, there's another study of heroin users. Um, I forget the name of the person that did it, uh, but they just found after a certain period of using, most of them decided to quit because they thought it was, you know, they didn't want it in their life anymore. That's right. That's right. No, I, I, we find that in our own uh, program, uh, you know, people using a lot on the street, get an apartment, then suddenly, like, you know, they have to pay 30% uh, of, of, of their income towards the rent. They got groceries to buy, you know, they they got a TV, a phone, and suddenly it's like there's only a little bit left, <laughs> and they, they find that there's, they're, they're buying a lot less, uh, you know, uh, drugs and alcohol because uh, the economy of their own life has shifted, uh, and they're spending the money on positive things, you know, and there's a little left over. And so there their habit begins to, you know, uh, be quite improved as well. Okay, we've got about three minutes left, and then we're going to bring our next guest on, who I see here is waiting. So uh, tell us a little bit about the – there have been some studies on your program and its effectiveness, I believe. Can you tell us about those? Well, we we have been, as you can imagine, when especially when we first started out, we were very, very uh, eager to uh, find out if this approach that I've been describing works at least as well as the other approach. And uh, and so we were able to get a grant from the federal government. Uh, it was the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Uh, this, pub- this study I'm referring to was published in the American Journal of Public Health 
uh, back in '04. But there's lots of research on our website uh, subsequent to that. But I, but I, I wanted to describe this study because it was sort of the most rigorous scientifically. We used a randomized control trial, 225 people in the study. You know, 100 of them, 99 actually, were came to pathways to housing in this harm reduction, housing first approach. And the others went to the treatment first, then housing. After 12 months, 80% of the time, the people uh, in the housing first program were housed and not using any more, even though they could use as much as they want to, than the people in the treatment first study. And only 24% of the time were the people in the treatment first study able uh, to stay housed. So it had a huge uh, differential in the, uh, the ability to get someone off the street immediately and keep them off the street, uh, you know, permanently. And over time, uh, people's addiction and mental health improved. You know, six months after being housed, we began to see a remittance in both uh, drug alcohol use and um, and psychiatric symptoms. Okay, thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Dr. Sam Samburis. Uh For you people out there, you can Google Pathways to Housing or Housing First. Do you have a website? Yes, we do. It's uh, pathwaystohousing.org. Pathwaystohousing.org. So everybody uh, go and look up. It's an excellent website, and uh, it's an excellent program. And thank you very much for being our guest. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, we're going to bring on our next guest right now, who is Dr. Helga Matsko. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Let me introduce you a little bit. This is Dr. Helga Matsko, who is the founder of the Gestalt Institute of Rhode Island, and she has a program called Beyond Recovery that we're going to talk about in a little more depth here. Before we go on to that I wanted to just ask you, um, we don't hear about Gestalt therapy as much as we used to. Uh, what is Gestalt psychology, and how's it, how does it differ from, say, a psychoanalytic, psychoanalytic approach or a cognitive behavioral approach? Well, uh, that's a really good question and would take a long time to answer, so I'm going to be very brief, Kenneth, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, basically, Fritz Perls, the co-founder of Gestalt Therapy, was a German analyst out of the uh, Berlin School of Psychoanalysis. Uh, because of the situation in Germany, he uh, emigrated to first to South Africa and then to New York. And with his wife and some social scientists, he began exploring the Gestalt principles of change. Basically, uh, to my, my way of thinking, it is the most inclusive of human behaviors and dilemmas and, and a way of working with them than any other theory, uh, theory has. Um, it is not psychoanalytic because psychoanalytic goes into the why and has the person explore why they are doing what they are doing. Well, that and and uh, a dollar will buy you a cup of coffee, and it doesn't really 
get very much, uh, very far. As a matter of fact, Pearls uh, really joined uh, Tillich in Germany. He he joined the people from um, uh, that studied perception and experience, and that then f- uh, formed the foundation for Gestalt therapy. It works in the here and now. It looks at how the individual uh, creates their experience, what they take from it, how they interpret it, and if their responses work for them. And the Gestalt theory of change is extremely complex and very simple, and this is what we use in just about all situations. And that is change happens when you become who you really are, not when you try to be what you are not. And that speaks to the whole concept in uh, Gestalt philosophy that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. We cannot be identified by any one behavior because we are much more complex and comprehensive. So this this is the foundation. We don't hear as much about uh, Gestalt uh, therapy and Gestalt uh, psychology as much because it really has deepened tremendously. And much of its popularity was due to Fritz Perl's theatrical presentations. And he was really quite adept in, in getting getting uh, people involved and going. But it's not what we consider Gestalt theory today. So that's why you don't hear as much, but it has very, very deep roots. What is the relation between Gestalt therapy and uh, Martin Seligman's positive psychology? Well, uh, the connection is one that I have made when I studied with uh, Martin Seligman and his program, and that is that we have a tendency as human beings to look at the negatives, and we tend to feel badly for ourselves. We tend to feel trapped very many times, and we find ways to escape these experiences because they are not comfortable. Whereas Martin Seligman says that there is such a thing as balancing one's life by looking not only what hurts, but looking at several things. One is the usefulness of the experience of hurting and the lessons we can learn from it and transcend the negative and look at the positive at the same time and allow ourselves to grow in the positive directions as well. In other words, we have the ability to both uh, be happy or sad our our uh, society as a whole focuses more on what's wrong. Martin Seligman does not deny there are many things wrong, but he looks at the solution by looking at human potential for the positive and primarily human strengths and their values. So that is the connection that I have made and included it in my program. Well, I read his book, uh, Learned Optimism, some time mm-hmm. ago. It's been out for a long time now. Oh, yeah. And 
I found that a very useful book, and I put that together with some cognitive behavioral things that I learned, and uh, they were very useful in me helping me to overcome depression, which I used to suffer from a lot, and now I don't suffer from very often. So I thought that was a very useful thing. Yes, I I agree with you. That was his very first discovery, that helplessness is learned. It's not something that we feel when we are young, because the human person has a very creative nature to our being. Whenever we are in difficulties, we adjust to to live through the experience and make it manageable for ourselves, whatever age we are. And he believes that if we are told, for instance, in in addiction, we have an illness, Uh, we will have it for life, we will not be able to get over it unless we do X, Y, Z, that creates a helplessness in the addicted individual without realizing it just becomes part of him because he is un- he or she is unable to take the initiative to look at its own internal functioning and what else could be possible so the the idea of creating authentic happiness, which is not la-la land or drug-taking, escaping into into uh, just uh, narcissistic behaviors. It is really complex because it considers not only the, the negative, but it also considers the hope and the learning that comes out of that. So this is something that came out of... Uh, his early realization of uh, helplessness. It's very, very good. We were just talking in our previous segment about the uh, ASAM definition now of addiction or drug taking is more accurate because our government calls all drug taking addiction, apparently. Uh, And the new definition says it's an organic brain disease. And we're saying, you know, this is this is a difficult, this is a problematic definition because it tells people they're helpless, but that doesn't fit the facts that spontaneous remission is more common than any other outcome. Yes, yeah, something like 80% people mature out of it. Uh, I know there are strong points of views on it being a brain disease, but cons- consider this way, uh, this, this part, uh, Kenneth. Uh, we love to be joyful. I love to have music. My, I, I, I enjoy classical music. I enjoy opera. Is it an addiction? Is it a disease? No, it's something that I enjoy. And when we, and my brain reflects that. Now, if I'm in discomfort for whatever reason, and it's hard for me to bear, then to use a drug relieves me. And that relief registers in the brain as enjoying. But it is no different from me enjoying orgasms or listening to opera or working in my garden as it is for taking drugs. And we all know as human beings that if we like something, we do it and we repeat it again and again. And so it is with drug taking. So we we can say we are developing addictive habits, but everything we do, Kenneth, in life and every human being, every activity has a purpose. So if it works for us, 
we can say it develops into an addictive habit, but it's no different than a joyful habit. Only joyful habits don't have the uh, the consequences that drug taking may have. But there is, in my way of thinking, uh, you you cannot blame it as a, a brain disease. It's really it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, we also see other things that cause uh, changes in the brain, even major permanent changes. There was a good study that was done on London taxi drivers. I don't know if you've seen this, but their hippocampus enlarges greatly as they memorize the streets of London because it's so complicated and none of the streets are straight or simple. And so they get, But no one says driving a taxi cab in London is a brain disease. Exactly, exactly. That's the point. And I think there is just such a discrepancy between what the medical, what the medical uh, community is is presenting. And and I'm not quite sure. I I do believe, and and I'm an immigrant, so I I uh, I, I love America. I've been here for uh, well, my goodness, since I'm 18, and I'm. 78 now. Uh, I love America. However, um, in 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 America, there is such or has become such a focus on uh, what's wrong. What's wrong? Go to a doctor. There is a pill for everything, so that it creates this helplessness that Seligman is talking about. Common sense goes out of the window. For instance. Some people will say uh, they have insomnia because they don't sleep a night or two a week. Or they'll say, oh, I'm so depressed because I have a down day. Everything get, becomes symptomatic in a big way. So, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, we, we can train our brain toward helplessness or we can look at what strengths do we have that can counter the the common belief system in society that doesn't get people very far. Yeah, we just did a show a few weeks ago about uh, antidepressants, and they probably do a lot of damage for people unless they're really severely depressed and have a strong need. For people that just have a minor down day, it's probably harmful to be taking the antidepressants. Yeah. Let let me just uh may may I reveal uh, something personal here? Yes, Is yes, that please. okay? Yes, please. Um I um having gone lived for Germany as a child, I had extremely traumatic experiences that uh we see on television all the time, but we can't quite imagine it here because we haven't really had it much in this country. War experiences. Well, I, when I came to this country, uh, German people weren't too appreciated at that time, and I, uh, I became very depressed. I, I felt I didn't belong. I made a big mistake, and I became very impressed. Well, so depressed that at one time they gave me shock treatments, and yet nobody. And of course, I got, I got over it. Um, and not from shock treatments, just because I had it and I threw the medications out and I said, this is for the birds. No one had ever asked me what my experiences were. No one had ever asked me to 
explain what I'm all about. So this is often what happens in cognitive behavioral therapy is is very, very good, very useful, but it leaves out a very important component, and that is the function of motivation and emotional motivation. So, uh, yeah, there is a lot wrong with the psychiatric community, but, of course, you know, they also do some good, but... Uh, people become accustomed to taking medication, and just as they become, as a matter of fact, there are more people addicted to prescribed drugs than they are addicted to uh, substances. I'm sure you are familiar with those mm-hmm, figures. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about the Beyond Recovery program. What's this about? Okay, well, I I am a Gestalt therapist and I have been for over 30 years. And in uh, 2002, I have decided that I want to add coaching to my repertoire of working with people. And I really found it extremely useful because it's a very positive approach and echoes what I know about Gestalt theory. So it was almost a perfect fit for me. So the Beyond Recovery program is really based on uh, the Gestalt methodology and perception and experience. And also I include uh, Martin Seligman's positive psychology principles, which I've briefly, very briefly explained. And I also include uh, Robert Keegan's uh human developmental theory. And one of the statements I like so much is when he states that uh, human human beings are not sick or disordered. They are in the throes of their own becoming. And this, I think, is such a perfect statement for what I do in the Beyond Recovery Program. People can be in early recovery, they can be in late recovery, but there is always, there's for many, especially if they've attended AA and had difficulties at home or with the law, there's always a lot of shame and guilt associated with it. And when we work that that strength, and this is a bit of a paradox and it takes a while for people to to realize that that our the addictive process from very young it started very very young as we learn to make adaptations in our families of origins and this is not to blame the family this is a correlated relationship uh, that we slowly adapted and got away from our true selves and usually in adolescence when these developmental lacks become most apparent, uh, young people often resort to drugs. And ironically, for the first time, they find friends and they fit in. I hear that again and again, over and over. Now, what what happens then is what, what we don't appreciate is that they uh, are creative in adapting that they are resilient and survive, whatever that is for them. And even though it got them to take 
substances or whatever, sex or whatever it is. It was their attempt to get through discomfort. And by the time they see us, even with addiction or in recovery, they totally forgot how how resilient they were, how masterful they were to find ways to help them get through to the point of where they are when they come to us. So I look very much at strengths. And what I do, the very first time I see anybody, I ask them for homework to take, to take the VIA test, the strengths test, and Martin Seligman's uh, page, AuthenticHappiness.com, and it's, it's um, a, a test on inherent characteristics individual has most often from very early on. You can tell by an infant what kind of a personality he projects and stays for, for life. How we use these strengths is usually based on uh, expressed in our value system. So when we look at the strengths, we can look at and how are you living those values. Usually when you work with uh, newly recovering people, they said, well, my, my value was not to go crazy. My value was not to lose it. My value was not to commit suicide. So there is a constant adaptation and reframing of these perceptions, not only social perceptions, but individual experiences and their perceptions that helps them realize the the, the uh, resilience that they have and the determination, instinctively knowing something isn't right, but not being able to help themselves because many of them have... Uh, you know, skill deficiencies, life skill deficiencies, because they couldn't develop them in the process as they were growing up in a good enough environment. So that is what this is all about. We try to, uh, uh, in this program, we focus on possibilities. We focus on what have you learned, how can you validate yourself, and what would you like to become? What are your objectives for living? What would satisfy you? What do you want from life? And how can you get it? And this is then how we look at the missing skills that prevent them from making choiceful decisions on how to proceed. Okay, uh, who comes to this program? Uh, do, do you have people that are attending AA? Do you have people who are dissatisfied with AA, or do you have people who are still in active drug use? Well, I have people who are in active drug use. If if they are in a position where they can look at that, uh, you know, in other words, if they don't if they don't go into um, into um, DTs or something, uh, yeah, then I can work with them and they can make the decision if they are strong enough to make decision and learn this or if they should go to therapy first somewhere. 
But most of the people that uh, this program is most effective is if they come uh, dissatisfied with AA, and so many are, uh, then it works really well because they know it didn't fit for them. And I'm not against AA at all. It works for some people, and that's good. They should do it, but it doesn't work for everyone. So people who are disenchanted with AA, people who think they have stopped using, they are okay by not indulging in these negative activities, but they don't have the skills. They keep getting in their own way. So through the skill building, the 10 growth process affirmations that I use in the progression of uh, coaching is what supports them getting to where they want to be in life. Okay, tell me about those affirmations. Well, what what they are really is... Um, Okay, affirmations are, for instance, let me, they, they are, they, the statements celebrate the reality of who the client is in the ongoing present. We don't go back and rehash because even a memory is experienced right now, and that's what we work with. So we look at how he lives his life and provides uh, that can provide possibility for habit-changing skill building from the inside out. So, for instance, the first one is uh, reflecting, not reflected. It's an ongoing process. Reflecting on my life into recovery, I have discovered that I'm strong, resilient, creative, and capable. I can create a life fulfilling my potential based on my strengths and values. So this is something that they learn once they take the assessment and some other assessments out of the positive psychology realm. They realize how all of this is is connected. And then they are going to, uh, the next one, for instance, would be for them to get in touch with their body-mind-self connection. They are this embody many of them. They are, their, their body is their enemy. So any kind of sensations they may have in the body, they immediately see threatening. Rather than seeing this is something, your body is telling you what's going on isn't right. So we help them use their body, their interpretation of their sensations, their biography, all of that to unravel the uh, the sensations and all of these accommodating uh, decision-making processes and help them find uh, different reasoning. They find meaning in the discomfort, and they can look at what might be more useful for them to proceed. So to connect with uh, the visceral sensation is essential. And yes, the mind will live and respond to 
the biography, something that is familiar. So we cannot, and positive and uh, cognitive uh, therapy does this also, they challenge that thinking. But what we have to remember, most of these experiences are imprinted very, very young, and it takes patience to explore it. So that would be the, the one of the most important learning experiences. And then we learn about how to take responsibilities, how to set boundaries, and now how to self-manage. And all of these skills are interconnected, but they are developmentally based. Now, it could be that some people uh, know about the body. They've taken yoga. They've taken all kinds of uh, wellness programs. They know that, but they don't know how to put it all together. So we just go through all of these phases uh, until they can make choices, they can fulfill their needs from uh, from Maslow's point of view, our needs as we grow older, and they, they learn all the skills to uh, to you know that are required to live the life they choose to live. So those are the um, and of course unfinished business is a big part too. And forgiveness, and forgiveness not only of others but of self. So all of these are very important skills that they learn in the process. Well, I've often thought people are using drugs or alcohol because you mentioned Maslow's needs, hierarchy of needs, and often because I think their needs are unfulfilled otherwise, Absolutely. so they're trying to. Absolutely. Yes. And the discomfort is so great that they can't stand it. So they drink or, or use drugs or something. And this is a, a connection that's missed in the medical field. Well, you, if you look at de Blasio, the, you know, the very serious brain researchers, they'll, they'll uh, agree with all of that. When our body doesn't feel right, just, I mean, if you feel slumped over, stand up straight. And, and get the experience what that feels like. Can you be as sad when you're standing straight as you are when you're slumped over? And there is something not right in our way of being. And it gives us the, the, it, the message, the first message, that there is something we can look at. We have to raise our awareness to what is, not take what is familiar and keep doing the same thing over and over. That's how we stop the addictive habits. Okay, we're we're just about at a close now. Uh, where can people get a hold of you? What's your website? Well, my website is very easy. It's www.gestaltri.com. That's my website and they'll find a lot of information there. And I I, uh, I will say that my courses are for people who are therapists. They are certified by NADAC. I'm a, I'm a, a provider for NADAC. And for coaching, I'm certified by uh, ICF, the Inter International Coaching uh, Federation. So the coaches who take my courses will get credit for coaching and the others can have credit for addiction credits. 
Okay, thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Dr. Helga Matsko. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Okay, everyone, tune in next week when our guests will be Dr. Jeffrey Shaler, the author of Addiction is a Choice. And we have a person from Dance Safe, which is the pill testing organization for raves and ecstasy, who will be talking about what their organization does to keep people safe at raves. Thank you very much, everyone, and good night. Thank you, and good night.